It is common in modern thinking to hear a statement along the lines, something like this, that Jesus is good, but his church is not. It is common among modern thinking to say, I will take Jesus, give me Jesus, but you can keep the church. The church isn't for me. The church is too flawed. The church is too much hypocrisy. The church has too many problems. You, you, give me Jesus, but you keep the church. Now, admittedly, the church has not done much to defend herself from such a charge. With the scandals and hypocrisy and meanness that is often found between the, in the, within the fellowship of a church, it is not a hard thing to see how some people come to such a conclusion. Many of you, in fact, are no doubt dealing with your own hurt, the own, your own woundedness of what you've experienced in the church and what you've had done to you, perhaps, in the church, or the hypocrisy that you've seen in the church. And so we allow, we allow this type of flawed understanding of the church to come in and to infect our minds so much so that we believe that the church is optional and easily discarded. I just want to be frank with you this morning. My goal is to completely dismantle any thinking in your mind that would be along those lines. My goal this morning is to dismantle in your mind any logical conclusion that you can come up to in which you can live faithfully to Christ and unfaithfully to the church. In John chapter 13, Jesus issues what he calls a new command. It is in fact just an addition to an old command, a, a variation of a very old command. But in John chapter 13, having just experienced the last Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus gets on his hands and feet and with his hands and feet and with water and a towel washes the filthy feet of his disciples. And he says, as I have done to you, do to one another. Serve one another this way. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. And this is how everyone will know that you are my disciples. This is what will mark you as distinct. This is what will set you apart from all of the other groups in the, in the world. It will be the way that you love one another. Well, no doubt everyone that was there that day, all of the disciples, perhaps Judas aside, were profoundly affected by this new commandment that Jesus had given. So, but no one, we can see, is more affected by it than John. He records it in his gospel. And then in First and Second John, he brings this commandment up six more times. And so this morning, we are going to be in First John chapter 3. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? We're going to be in First John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 10. First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. God's word says... By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered, uh, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 
Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Throughout the book of 1 John, it is of primary importance. In fact, it is, I believe, the primary theme of 1 John that John wants Christians to know, in fact, they are Christians. He wants non-Christians, in fact, to know that they are non-Christians, unbelievers, to understand that they are unbelievers. And so it is common, as you read throughout the book of 1 John, that you will hear him say, and by this you will know. By this you will know whether or not you are really in the faith. By this you will know whether or not you are a true disciple of Christ or an imposter. By this you will know whether or not your faith is genuine. Now, we even see in our verse, beginning in verse 10, he says, by this it is evident. Or, this is the fruit of, we might say. And there is no doubt that he is thinking back to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 says that a good tree will produce good fruit. And a bad tree will produce bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad bad tree cannot produce good fruit. By this you will know them, their fruit. By their fruit you will know them. And so what Jesus tells us is that we will be able to know who his disciples are. In fact, we will be able to know whether or not we are his disciples by looking at the evidence. By looking at the fruit in our life to see what the tree ultimately is. And throughout the book of 1 John, the primary way that John says that you will be able to know whether or not you are in the faith is whether or not you have a life that is righteous. Whether or not you have a life that is godly. Whether or not in your life you are pursuing godliness and growing in godliness and maturing in godliness. That if you look at in your life and you see no fruits of godliness there. If you look in your life and you see no hunger and thirst for the Lord there. If you look in your life and you see no, no burning passion for obedience, even when you are disobedient, that in fact you should believe that you are not a Christian. That the love of God and the presence of God and the Spirit of God is not abiding in you and that you are not a Christian. Now in our passage this morning though, John is, is pointing us to a specific work of righteousness. He is pointing us to a specific fruit of godliness. Namely, that of loving one another. Loving our Christian brothers and sisters. Loving those of us with whom we fellowship in the church. That we are to love one another, and by us loving one another, by us being committed to one another, by us being connected to one another, it is evidence and it is fruit that we are in fact children of God. That we are in fact followers and disciples of Christ. That we have been adopted into the household of God. Now if we're honest, we would have to say that John couldn't have said this any stronger. Right? John could not have said this, and you'll read, you'll enjoy reading John because John is not really one to mince words. Now, he's a circular thinker. You know what I'm talking about? 
artistic types, people that are musical. We talk with John about this a lot. John, John's a circular thinker. In other words, they have this subject and they jump to this subject and they go back over to this subject and they just they think in circles. And so uh, they repeat themselves a lot and they, they talk. And then you have people that are maybe more logical thinkers would be linear thinkers, right? But when we read the epistles in the New Testament, we see that, that Paul <clears throat> is very much a linear thinker. He is always talking very didactically, and he's always speaking in this way that it's this, lo- this logic plus this logic equals this conclusion, right? With John, just like our brother John that leads us in worship every week, he is a circular thinker. And so if you're an artistic type, you would perhaps enjoy reading John too. But John could not have said this <clears throat> any, excuse me. could not have said this any clearer. What does he say? He says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. In verse 10 he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is one who does not love his brother. He says uh, later on that, that we are in fact children of the devil. Children of the devil. So here's what he's saying. Let me, let's just boil all this down. He says, if you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are not connected to your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are not committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you aren't saved. You are in Christ. In fact, you are a child of the devil. In fact, you are one that is, would be considered an enemy of God in your sinfulness and in your wickedness. That if this fruit is not there, if this evidence is not there, if this commitment is not there, if this abiding love is not there, then the love of God, the salvation of God does not abide in you. That's what he says, right, in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, whoever does not love abides in death. That if you do not have love for your church family, if you do not have love for the fellowship of Christians, if you do not have love for the universal church and the global church, if you are not committed to the church, then the love of God does not abide in you. In fact, you abide in death. So that's a good time for us to reflect for a second. What does your commitment to the church say about your heart? What does your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ What does your commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ say about your heart? What evidence is there? What what fruit is there? What does it say about your commitment to follow Christ and whether or not you were abiding in life or abiding in death? Whether or not you were a child of God or a child of the devil? Well, if loving one another, if having this love is of such great value, if it is so significant that it can be a a determining factor of whether or not we know Christ, it would be good to know what exactly he means by love. Love is a polluted thing in our world, isn't it? Our definitions of love are very polluted because we say that we love everything from Pop-Tarts to football teams to our wife and children, right? So when, when, Paul, when John is talking so directly, when John is coming so strongly on this subject of love, what exactly does he mean? And I think he tells us. I want to sp- spend the most of the, our time this morning in verses 16 through 18. So let's read verse 16 together. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 
And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He says this. He says, by this we'll know love. So he's assuming our question. He's predicting our teaching. Great teachers do this. Great preachers do this. They, they predict the question of the congregation before the congregation asks us. And John does just that. He says, I bet you're wondering then, if it makes you a child of the devil to not abide in love, what does it mean to abide in love? What does it mean to love at all? And so he says in verse 16, by this we know love. By this, th this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about love. And what does he say for us to do? He says for us to understand love, for us to comprehend of the kind of love that he's talking about when he's talking about us loving one another and us loving the church, he says look to the cross. Look to the cross. He says that is where we get the definition of love. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about love. We're talking about the love of the cross. The word used for love here is the word agape. And it is the strongest word for love used in all of the New Testament. Agape love is supreme love. Agape love is sacrificial love. Agape love is willing love. Agape love is not emotional love. It is not puppy love. It is not erotic love. It is committed, steadfast, immovable, sacrificial love. In other words, it's the love of the cross. It's the love that says, you may be unfaithful to me, but I choose to be faithful to you. It's the love that says, you may reject me, but I'm pursuing and coming after you. You may be unwilling, but I am willing. You may bring nothing to the table, but I still want you. It's the love that we're looking for in wedding vows. When we look at one another and we say, look, this is bigger than a, a, a feel-good moment. This is bigger than a mountaintop. This is bigger than goosebumps and warm feelings. This is bigger than all of that. No, in sickness and in health, I'm in with you. In prosperity, I'm with you. In poverty, I'm with you. If tomorrow you become a paraplegic for the rest of my life, I want you to know I'm committing to you. I'm all in with you. It's the love of the cross. It's agape love. And who is it for? For us. Now, it's significant that he, how John describes it here, isn't it? It says that, that he laid down his life. You understand this morning that Jesus' life was not taken from him. Jesus' life was not taken from him. Nobody went against Jesus' will, took him to the cross, held him down, and nailed him there. No, Jesus voluntarily went. Jesus willfully gave up his life. Jesus laid down his life on the cross. And he's saying this is the kind of love that should define my church. Not us going kicking and screaming against our will. Not us serving begrudgingly. Not us loving haphazardly. But us willfully laying down our lives for one another. And he says he laid down his life for us. The us is significant here, church. You see, we live in a very narcissistic world and a narcissistic culture. And we want to make the gospel all about us. We want, the, we want to make the gospel all about me individually. We want to make the cross all about me individually. And you listen to so many southern gospel songs and contemporary Christian songs. And brothers and sisters, they are narcissistic. Saying that, that Jesus just died for me. No, Jesus did not just die for you. Jesus died for his church. His church. 
He died for us. He laid down his life for us. There is a particular love. There is a particular passion. There is a particular sacrifice made on behalf of the Son for the church. Not just for me, but for the church. Here's what that means. That whenever you are apathetic and indifferent toward the church, you are apathetic and indifferent toward the atoning work of Christ. You understand that? Whenever you are indifferent toward the church, whenever you are apathetic toward the church, whenever you are non-committed to your other brothers and sisters, you in fact are apathetic, indifferent, non-committed to the atoning work of Christ. No wonder John comes so strongly. No wonder, because he laid down his life for us, for all of us, for those of us in Christ, every believer this morning. Every believer that you can lay your eyes on, you are laying your eyes on one who is covered by the spilled blood of Christ. How can there be such contempt in our hearts? How can there be such non-commitment in our hearts? How can there be such indifference and such apathy in our worship? How can we come and worship together so begrudgingly? How is it such a chore for us to be committed in the church? We have been atoned for. We have been set free. We, he laid down his life for us. How easy is it for us to live our lives for one another? And this is what he says, isn't it? The last part of verse 16. He says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let, let's not mince words here. Let, let's say what John is saying. He's saying you ought to love your brothers and sisters in Christ so much. You ought to be committed to your church family so much that you would be willing to die for them. That you already know in your mind, in your heart, you have resolved and made up your mind, I will die for my church. I will die for my brothers and sisters. Now just reflect for a second. Is your heart there? Are you filled with that kind of gospel love? Are you filled with that kind of sacrificial love? Are you filled with that kind of passion for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes, we would lay down and die for our, our children. Yes, we would lay down and die for our wives. But would we die for one another? It's a penetrating question for all of us to ask. Perhaps, though, this morning the question will not be whether or not you will die for one another but whether or not you will live sacrificially for one another. Whether or not you will live sacrificially for one another. Because of the country that we live in, by God's grace, we still live in a place for now where the threat of violence against us is minimal, growing but minimal. But the call for us to lay down our lives in service to each other, that one has not gone away. That one is still there. Did you know every single week that you come to worship here, that you're benefiting from the sacrifices of many people? Every single week. We have teachers that are laymen in the church. All of our teachers are laymen. They study their lessons after they get home from an exhausting day for work, over the course of their weekend while everyone else is playing. Those that lead us in worship, our praise team, after Wednesday night service, they practice. Then they, they come back, leaving kids and, and husbands and wives at home to come and, and practice again at 8 o'clock in the morning. 
ushers and hosts come at 8.30 in the morning. Every week, regardless of how many funerals or counseling or what comes up, there's going to be a sermon. Every week, there is sacrifices made for the gathering of the body. Every week, there, is sac- there are sacrifices that are made so that we can come together and grow in Christ and mature in Christ. Are you a part of that? Are you participating in that? Because let me just tell you, there is always more joy in contributing than there is in consuming. There is always more joy in contributing than there is in consuming. Are you only a consumer and never a contributor? Now look, I, I understand that there are seasons in our lives in which it is unpo- impossible. There are seasons in which you have to care for an ailing and aging parent, and you just, you, you just can't. And there are seasons maybe where you have two children at home in diapers, and you just can't do everything that you would like to be able to do. I, I understand that. But what I want you to understand is that when you are not contributing, you are missing out on joy that you can't find anywhere else. Ask somebody that's been on a mission trip where they found joy. Ask somebody that that teaches every single week and has seen people grow right in front of their eyes, even be sent out to go and teach other classes. Ask them about the joy that it brings them. Ask uh, ask John about going and and ministering to those at the detention center. Ask about the joy that it brings them. Ask our angel ministry ladies, our our mission team, the people that that are going to the incident. Ask them, is there joy in contributing? And all of them will say, I want to do it over and over and over. Now, does that mean that every time you wake up at 6 o'clock on a Sunday morning to come up here and be on time for a worship team practice that you're going to be excited about it? If you are, you're godlier than I am. No, that's not, that's not it at all. As a matter of fact, if it was easy, I don't really know what kind of sacrifice that would be. If it was always convenient, I don't think that would really be a sacrifice at all. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is that what it will build in your life, contributing to the life of the church, loving your brothers and sisters in a way that you're laying down your life for them, it will build in your life an ever-flowing fountain of joy that will last the entirety of your Christian life and that you will be rewarded for in heaven. There's going to be nothing like than when you've been teaching um, fifth and sixth grade girls for 10 or 15 years to see them when they're 25, 35 years old following the Lord. There's going to be nothing like you dealing with teenagers and dealing with teenagers and going to camp with teenagers and doing all that stuff with teenagers only to run into them at Winn-Dixie with their family and see them loving the Lord and them to give you a hug around your neck and say thank you. It is a source, a fountain of joy for the redeemed that we get to share in the work of Christ. And there is joy in contribution, brothers and sisters. Will you live for one another? Will you contribute? Will you sacrifice so that other people might be benefited from you? Will you model the gospel? Will you model Christ in your life? In verse 17, what we see is we see him go kind of from from big picture down to a more narrow picture. Notice this. He says, verse 17, let's read it together. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? All right, so in verse, verse 6, saying, what did he say? Lay down your life for the brothers. This is plural, right? He says, lay it down for the, the church in general, right? For your brothers and sisters in Christ in general. But then when we get to verse 17, he says, if you see your brother 
it's, it's singular, it's, it's narrowed down. I read one commentator who said it like this. He said, you know, sometimes we love everybody in general to excuse us loving nobody in particular. We do that, don't we? How many of us say, I love my church? I love my church family, but it never costs us anything. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I don't really do anything for them. Because it's easy to love everybody in general, and it's, it's costly, and it's difficult, and it's burdensome, and it's cumbersome for us to love them in particular. Right? But this is what John is calling us to. He's, he's making sure that we understand what it means to live out this new commandment to love one another. And he says that we should do it generously. You see that? He says it's not just about this abstract love. It's not just about, hey, I love you, bro. I love you, bro. Hey, we're all in, bro. Let's hug, bro. It's not, it's not about all of that. It's you seeing a need in their life, you seeing a void there, and meeting it. It's you bearing a burden for them, financially so. It's you bearing a burden for them with your material needs. It's taking what you have and giving it so that they might have. This is so clearly modeled in the new church, uh, in the Acts church, when they would sell their belongings so that they could care for a brother or a sister in need. Where is that spirit among us? Where is that spirit among us? Where we would willingly sell what we have so that our brothers and sisters might have, that we might deprive ourselves of something so that those that are in our church family would be deprived of nothing. Where is that spirit among us, brothers and sisters? You see... One of the primary values of the gospel is generosity. It's generosity. The gospel in and of itself is the most generous act in all of history. We have God, owner and possessor of everything. God, filled with wealth and prosperity and splendor and glory. His streets paved with gold. We have God filled with righteousness and life and love and joy and hope and peace and mercy contentment and satisfaction significance and then you have us none are good not one you have us who who are spiritually dead and spiritually bankrupt who have nothing to offer to him and there are people that say that that God saves us so that we can he can give us the money that we need, so he can give us the house that we need. That's, that is to so cheap in the gospel. Do you understand how cheap that would be for God? If, if, if his love for you was just about him giving you a check, do you know how easy it would be for him to write a check? Like for, for all of us in here, probably $100,000 would be a big check for us to write to somebody. But if you go to Bill Gates, who is a multi, multi, multi-billionaire, he's got that in his couch cushions, right? It's cheap for him. It doesn't cost him anything. God is of infinite wealth. God is of infinite prosperity. And you want him just to give you a check? Like, that doesn't mean anything coming from God. That would be insignificant. No, that would cost God nothing. But God gave to you that which cost him everything. He gave you his son. His son of infinite value. That which is priceless. That which no number can be ascribed to it. That's the love with which he gave you. He gave you generously and sacrificially and painfully. He gave and exchanged those of us who are seemingly worthless for the one who was perfectly priceless. 
And by giving that which was priceless for that which was worthless, he made that which was priceless, that which was worthless to become priceless in Christ. You were only worth what God was willing to pay for you. And he didn't want to give you a house and say that was all you were worth. He didn't give you a check and say that was what you were worth. No, he gave you his son and said that is what you are worth. Now throughout the New Testament, one of the primary metrics for our faith is our generosity. One of the primary metrics for the sincerity of our faith is the generosity and the charity of our lives. John alludes to this, right? He says in verse 17, yet, uh, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Because we know what? Nothing hardens our hearts faster than money, does it? Nothing hardens our hearts quicker than our possessions, than the things that we have accumulated. Even some of you, when I talk about generosity, you shell up. You close up. You close up. You're, you're closing your heart. John would say to you, do you really think God's love is in you? If every time it comes down to your possessions, if every time it comes down to your bank account, if every time it does, you harden up and your, your heart closes, do you think the love of God is in you? Do you not care more for your church family than that? Do you not love your brothers and sisters more than that? That is how we pay power bills here. We pay them. That, that is how we buy Christmas presents for people here. We have a benevolence thing. This is how we care for one another here. That's how we uh, take care of our facility. This, this is how we minister here. Do you not care? Do you not care about the life of your church? Is the spirit of generosity not dominating your life? Are you giving sacrificially? Are you giving willfully? Let me ask you, how ridiculous would it be for us to keep that which is worthless when he has given us that which is priceless. How ridiculous would that be? And Jesus being so great, Jesus being so glorious, he says this, this is what he said. He said, all right, I'm going to give you that which is priceless, namely myself. I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to ask you to give to yourselves, to take care of one another, to love one another, to take your, your worldly possessions, to take your paychecks, to take your retirement income, and, and to, to share it with one another, and to care for one another. But then you're going to give that which is worthless, that which moths and rust can destroy. You're going to give that now, and then when you get to be with me forever, I'm going to give it all back to you, except like infinitely so. How foolish would we be to hold on to it? How foolish would we be to live for that stuff that moths and rust can destroy? That Jesus says that when you give it, I'm going to reward you for doing it forever. You give in time, and I'm going to reward you for eternity. It's the thermometer of your heart, brothers and sisters. What does it say about yours? What does it say about yours? Verse 18 says this. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or in truth. This is what John is saying. Let us not love one another in theory. Let us not love one another in just theory. Let us love one another in practice. Let us love one another in reality. Let us love one another really. 
Let's demonstrate our love to each other. And this is what we see in the gospel too, isn't it? It is the greatest picture of demonstrated love that we could ever imagine. I heard one preacher, Robert Smith, say it this way. It was not enough for God, it was not enough for Jesus to just die in the mind of God. He had to really die. Have you ever thought about that? God couldn't just say, I think Jesus ought to die, I think he must die, so he'll just die in my mind. He'll just die in theory. He'll just die hypothetically. No, that was not enough. He had to truly die. He had to lay down his life for his church. He had to really die. He had to demonstrate his love for us in reality. He had to demonstrate his love sacrificially. I think among us, it's much more common for us to love our church in theory than it is to love our church in practice and reality. You see, in theory, we say God is our top priority. But in reality, we say it is Little League. In theory, we say our church family comes first. But in reality, we have pushed church so far to the margins that we only come when we can fit it into our schedules. In theory, we say our joy is found in God alone. That our hope is found in God alone. That our pleasure is found in God alone. But in reality, it is in leisure and in sleeping late and in our hobbies. That is not enough, brothers and sisters. That would make us, in fact, children of the devil. No. We have to love one another in deed and in truth. We have to love one another practically, proving it, demonstrating our love for one another. And this is what church membership is. This is what church membership is. You understand that? Did you know when you enter into a church, and, and, and just frankly, this has not been taught well here. It's going to be, and it's being taught better. But in the past, it's not been taught well. Did you know that when you enter into uh, to the church family, that you are entering into a covenant with one another? Did you know that? And in the old te- and, and essentially in our lives, there are three covenant relationships that we have. We have the relationship with the Lord in the new covenant. We have the relationship with our husband or wife in the marital covenant. And then we have the relationship with the New Testament church in the church covenant, right? And in the Old Testament, the way they would do a, co- a covenant is they would slaughter an animal. And they would cut it into pieces. And they would, they would form two lines. And the two partakers of the covenant would walk through the lines. And they were saying, well, if I break my end of the covenant, let happen to me what has happened to this animal. Did you know that we have entered into covenant with each other? We have entered into covenant with each other to bear one another's burdens. We have entered into covenant with one another to, to meet one another's needs. We have entered into covenant with one another to hold one another accountable, to grow together in Christ, to mature together in Christ, to grow in his word. We have grown, we have come together in covenant before God, saying, God, would you bless us in this relationship with our church family? I'm calling you to do two things this morning. I'm calling you to do two things. One is if you've just attended. You've never really been willing to demonstrate forever permanent love. And, and, I, and I know it takes time. We, look, I want you to hear me say, we want you to be slower than quicker. I, I have a high view of church membership. A high view of church membership. I think it is not something to be taken lightly. It should take time for you to decide what church family you're going to enter into covenant with. But if you know this is your church, I'm asking you, join us. Commit to being a part of, enter into covenant with us. 
Stand shoulder to shoulder with us for the gospel. Attack hell with us for the gospel. Push back the lostness with us for the gospel. Go to the ends of the earth with us for the gospel. Give to one another for the gospel. Love one another for the gospel. Join us here. Join us here. We want you to be a part of this. The second thing I want you to do is if you are a longtime member of our church, or you are a current member of our church, I want to ask you to renew your membership between you and the Lord. Are you living out this standard of love in your life? Are you living out this commitment to your church in your life? I'm asking you, I'm calling on you as your pastor, renew your commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Renew your commitment to your church. Let it not be said of us that we are impossible to distinguish as the disciples of Christ because of the way we lack to love one another. No, let it be said of us that that is a place that I want to be. That is a place that is different. That is a place that is set aside by the radical way that they care for each other. Those people seem like they would even die for one another. This morning, evaluate your life. Examine your heart. Is the love of God really abiding in your heart? Are you really children of God? Perhaps this morning the Lord has revealed to you that you are not. I would ask you, come and talk to one of our pastors this morning. Talk to one of our deacons. The gracious extension of, of salvation is available for you this morning. We want you to come. This morning, if you want to join our church, I'd ask you to come forward and apply this morning to membership by, by seeing one of our pastors and letting us pray with you. This morning, if you re have... Uh, realize that you are in sin, that you've realized that you've not been contributing as the Lord would have you to contribute. Come and pray at the altar and repent. But this morning, let us be a church that is known for loving one another. Let us pray.